0: Before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to make a couple announcements. One relates to the fact that uh, next uh, Friday night week, that would be the 17th of this month, Steve Adams and his sons will be here for a concert. Uh, I'm really pleased to introduce them to you. They were at our alumni banquet at the uh, General Assembly this last summer, and it was like a camp meeting. And I think that you will really enjoy the Adams family, and they've uh, indicated they wanted to to give this concert in honor of my retirement, and I'm just honored that they're willing to do that. Uh, Following that concert, we want to celebrate because uh, we have uh, received a powerful recognition for the college, and that is that we are now accredited by HLC. And so we want to have a reception following the the concert over in the the, uh, student union building. So uh, plan on that. Bring your family. And we'll enjoy a great concert, a Friday night together here at seven o'clock, and uh, great music, and then a celebration over in the the Student Union Building. Uh, The real news is that all of you who are attending here, you're going to be able to graduate with regional accreditation. So that's that's the real honor right there. It's what it means to you personally. And then uh, I know that we're all interested in uh, who is going to step into my shoes in the next few weeks. And I think that uh, we want to know that God is involved in this because uh, this is an important place. This is a holy hill that God has set apart. And uh, we believe that leadership is important. And so uh, we will be having a, a prayer time here every Friday for the next three weeks leading up to the board meeting. It will be a prayer and fast time, encouraging you to fast the noon meal on Friday and to gather here in the building There will be a leader who will uh, give some scripture on uh, prayer followed by a time of us just praying around the altar and uh, staying as long as you would feel comfortable to stay. But uh, we're not trying to tell God what to do. We want God to tell us what he wants to do as far as the future of this campus is concerned. And so we just simply want to find the mind of God and encourage you to be a part of that. The T.W. Willingham lecture series was funded by the T.W. Willingham family and it's one of the highlights on our campus because this is the time we have the preacher of the year and uh, T.W. Willingham was a great preacher himself. He was one of those kind of preachers that you never wanted him to quit and uh, that's not very common in the world today but uh, he was an outstanding preacher and I think he would be pleased with our preacher of the year this year because he is a great deal like Dr. Willingham. Last night we went a little over in our service and Alan on our chaplain he said i didn't even know it and uh, i've heard that same statement concerning dr willingham so i know that you're going to enjoy our speaker dr herbert mcgonigal dr mcgonigal was president of our uh, college in manchester england and that's be the nazarene theological college for a number of years There's one thing I didn't mention last night, and I should mention, and that is that under his leadership as president, he developed a relationship with the Manchester University, and so Manchester, uh, or the Nazarene Theological College, is now offering PhDs in cooperation with the Manchester University. Actually, the PhD is from Manchester, but it is conducted through uh, the school in, uh, our school in Manchester. Uh, This gives our students who attend that school an opportunity, or an access, I should say, to the finest Wesleyan library probably in the world. And uh, Dr. McGonigal is very familiar with all the documents in that library. He also has uh, guided hundreds of people through the, uh, the center there and Wesley studied to the sites of Wesley and uh, he has been recognized by the Epworth Society as one of the best guides around. In fact, recently they made him a member of the board of directors for a non-Methodist, that's quite a thing. And so uh, we are just so pleased to have him. He's written, I think, a a pivotal book in relationship to the development of Armenian thought, Sufficient Saving Grace. My wife and I have both read this book and uh, it's it's, uh, Wesley's development of our theology and I think all of us ought to know this book, and we have some of them in the, li- or in the bookstore, and I'm sure if we run out, we'll get more. So I want you to be aware of this book. We, we immediately got it when it was released, Dr. McGonigal. We welcome you, primarily we have uh, students from one class today, many faculty have gathered in because uh, we want to hear you and our staff. Welcome to Nazarene Bible College on this Wednesday morning.
1: Dr. Sanders, thank you again for the very warm welcome. I assure you that I'm very delighted, and very privileged, and a very honored to be here. I was particularly glad to hear of the recognition that the college has recently had. And from another Nazarene College in England, green and pleasant land, I'm delighted to bring you congratulations. I remember when we traveled the same road. A lot of hard work. The academic dean produced three volumes of papers for which he should have been given a degree. The university actually said it was the best submission that any college had ever made. Some of you know my colleague, Dr. Ken Brower, New Testament scholar. And uh, it was a great day. I know the feeling, and I congratulate the Bible College. And I do remind some of you that years ago in the General Assembly, I was the only delegate who stood up from Europe and said that this institution ought to be able to give a degree. I mentioned last evening that uh, I come from a rural area. I've always loved that and a lot of Methodist churches out in the country that are on a circuit and uh, are served by visiting preachers. And Recently, a wonderful illustration of that scripture which says, you know, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. visiting preacher went out to the country church And took the morning service, led the worship, and preached. Afterwards, he was invited home to lunch by a young farmer and his wife. And their little boy, who was about six. And the family came home. The husband and the wife went went into the kitchen to get lunch ready. And after a little while, the little boy came in from the kitchen to what we call the living room, where the preacher was sitting. And he engaged the preacher in conversation. And after a while he said he said mister when I grow up I am going to earn a lot of money and I'm going to give it all to you well said the preacher he said that's uh, that is very kind that's very nice but why would you earn a lot of money and give it to me because sir I just heard my daddy say that you're the poorest preacher he's ever met. (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes and suckling. Uh, Let's turn to the gospel according to Matthew. The great words of our Lord that opened the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 at verse 1. When he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we give thanks to the Lord for his word. Whenever it comes to this time in service, and the preacher reads the Sermon on the Mount, part of it, the eight Beatitudes, two thoughts run through the minds of the people in the congregation. Thought number one. I wonder which one of the eight he's going for. But you already know that because it's been published. The second thought is, I don't mind which of the eight he goes for as long as in this service he doesn't attempt all eight at one go. (laughs) Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What we call the Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto for living in the kingdom where Jesus is king. The Sermon on the Mount is not meant for everyone. It is meant only for those who by grace and faith have come into the kingdom. Matthew makes that very clear. He says that when our Lord saw the crowds he withdrew from the crowds went up on the mountain, and when his disciples were come, he began to teach them. This was not teaching for the crowds. This was the teaching of Jesus direct to all of those who were already under his lordship, under his kingship, in the kingdom. The fact of the matter is, we cannot expect unsaved men and women to live the life of the kingdom. They cannot do it. None of us can until we are born again into the kingdom where Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King. So it's a manifesto for all who are in the kingdom. And it's not, this sermon is not a set of rules that somehow you and I have to grit our teeth and do the best we can. It's not a set of rules at all. Rather, this is the manifestation of the lifestyle of those who are in the kingdom for whom Jesus is Lord and who are empowered by the Spirit. They are the marks of discipleship. They are not the demand that we have to fulfill. And when you read it, this is far beyond all human legislation. For the great first chapter, chapter 5, Rises to the climax of verse 48. Therefore, said Jesus, you shall be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. Far beyond human legislation. This is life in the kingdom. Life under the kingship of Jesus. Life for those who are possessed and directed by his spirit. And central to all of this... Is the person of Jesus the Messiah? He takes the authority to reinterpret the law of Moses. Six times he said, You have heard, it was said by those of old. And he quotes the Mosaic law, But I say to you, Not that our Lord denies the law. He simply raises it to a new plane and gives it a new interpretation. Jesus claims an authority higher than the law, higher than Moses. He has the authority to reinterpret both. I say unto you. We also notice as we read them that these Beatitudes, the eight, are wonderfully linked. They do not begin. Our Lord does not begin by saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He does not begin by saying, Blessed are the pure in heart. Where does our Lord begin? He begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those men and women who know their need of God. Men and women who are characterized by true poverty of spirit, whose language is always the language of Augustus Montague Toplady. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the other thing is when you and i look at the eight we cannot pick and choose the ones we particularly like and say well i rather like that and i'll try that and ignore the rest no these are a package all of these eight together are manifestations of life under the kingship of jesus you and i do them a great disservice If we think that out of the eight, we'll take maybe the, the two or three or the four that appeal to us and ignore the rest. We can't do that. This is all part of the manifesto of how Jesus both empowers us and expects us to live life in the kingdom. And so, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God the word heart is one of the most common words found in the Bible. And very, very seldom does it refer to the organ that pumps blood through the body. In more than 900 places, the Bible uses the word heart to speak of the essential person we are. Let me illustrate very quickly. Way back in the book of beginnings, In Genesis, the Lord saw that every imagination of the thoughts of the heart of man were only evil continually. And particularly it centers on the imagination of the heart. By the heart, the Bible means the whole world of our imagination. A little later in the same book, there's a very moving story Of how the old man Jacob received the unbelievable good news. The news he thought he never would have. That his beloved son Joseph was not dead. But was actually alive and living in Egypt and had been promoted and was doing well. And There's a lovely bit there the record says that when Jacob heard the news his heart fainted you know what that means he was overcome with emotion but the Bible says his heart so the heart doesn't only mean our imagination the heart means our whole emotional life we move into the book of uh, Exodus and we read constantly Pharaoh hardened his heart in other words he made a decision in his will so by by heart the Bible means our imagination By heart, the Bible means our emotional life. And by heart, the Bible means our will. So now when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's referring to the purity of imagination. He's referring to the purity of emotion and the purity of will. The whole inner person, all that makes you the man or woman you are, and our Lord himself says, how blessed are those whose imagination is pure, whose emotion is pure, whose will is pure. So this morning, inside the tidal minute, four simple questions. What, first of all, what is purity of heart? Way back in the book of Psalms, there's a lovely prayer in Psalm 86. Oh, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. The great Hebrew word, Yekad. Lord, bring together. I'm feeling all over the place, and I want you, Lord, to to bring my heart to center on one thing. Where, Where the psalmist talks about, all of his life being brought to major on one thing, to reverence, to adore, to fear the name of the Lord. Purity of heart, says to God, is to one will, one will. To have one supreme purpose, singleness of motive. The whole heart centered on the will and the purpose of of god in the new testament we read this the record in acts 15 god who knows the heart gave them those down in caesarea give them the holy spirit even says peter as he did to us and he put no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by faith The Old Testament passage has the idea of singleness of heart. The New Testament passage carries the idea of the heart being made clean. The heart being made holy. The heart being purified. And Peter says the great blessing that came to us by the Holy Spirit in the upper room is precisely what God the Spirit did for those Gentile believers down in Caesarea. He purified, he cleansed their hearts by faith. There's a wonderful description of purity of heart, what it is. In John Wesley's, one of his 13 sermons, based on... The Sermon on the Mount. The pure in heart, says Wesley, are those whose hearts God has purified even as he is pure, who are purified through faith in the blood of Jesus from every unholy affection, who, being cleansed from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfect holiness in the loving fear of God. They are, through the power of his grace, purified from pride by the deepest poverty of spirit, from anger, from every unkind and turbulent passion by meekness and gentleness, from every desire but to please and enjoy God, To know and love him more and more by that hunger and thirst after righteousness which now engrosses their whole soul. So that they now love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength. Blessed are the pure in heart, said our Lord for purity of heart is singleness of purpose, and it is to have the heart cleansed from every sinful affection. And we have the highest authority for that. It was our Lord Himself who said it. It was our Lord Himself who taught it. There, we, we, you know, we really ought not to ask the question is purity of heart possible? Or we question the authority of Jesus. Jesus just said, blessed are those whose heart is pure. Did our Lord commend the impossible? Of course not. That's what it is. Why is the second question. Why is purity of heart so important? Again, our doctrine and our understanding comes from this book. Here's a place where I know you study the volumes of theology, and I applaud you for that. But as good Nazarenes, we are homo unius libri. We are men of one book. First and foremost, the book of God. Listen to the wise man in the Proverbs. Keep your heart, he says, you know the text, with all diligence. Why? For out of it are the issues of life. Guard your heart. Keep your heart right, for the heart determines conduct. The heart determines behavior. I'm no better in my life than the condition of my heart. Out of of the heart comes all that we are. Before we do the wrong thing, we treasured it in here. Before we say the unkind thing, it was inside. Keep your heart. Guard your heart. For out of it are the issues of life. Prophet Jeremiah added his insight into human nature. The heart, he says, is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But we have the highest authority again of all, the authority of our Lord in Mark 15. Out of the heart of man, said Jesus, Proceed, what a list. Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. The list is almost, where do they all come from? From the heart, said Jesus. That's why. That is why purity of heart is so essential. A holy heart is a fundamental condition for holy living our lives are only holy to the extent that our hearts are pure everything proceeds from the heart you know this book this book really knows the heart more than 900 references Recently, I compiled, not all 900, but a little list of, well, two lists. First of all, on the, on the negative side, the heart that is unrenewed. And on the other side, the heart that knows God. Here's part of the list on the left hand. An evil heart. They're all biblical quotations. An evil heart an impenitent heart a weak heart a proud heart a foolish heart part of the list now here's the lovely list on the other side a contrite heart a broken heart an upright heart a clean heart a pure heart a glad heart a perfect heart and into those Two lists this morning fit all the hearts of every man and woman on the planet this morning. Yours and mine is either on the list, and I hope it isn't on the left side, or the list on the right. This book, this book really knows the heart. And so our Lord says, blessed are those whose hearts are pure. I often visit the British Library in London. It is one of the world's great libraries. Recently it was relocated at a cost of 500 million and that's sterling. People from around the world come to study in the British Library. And when we have half term or reading and research, I've been going across the years and staying in London overnight and spending long days in the in the british library i picked up a little brochure which told me that in the british library in london there are in the english language almost 14 million books that's those just in english never mind all the other languages nearly <laughs> that's a lot of reading isn't it 14 million books and then those people who have an eye for figures one of them worked out that if you took all the 14 million books that are in the British Library in London and, and you laid them end to... now why you would want to do that I don't know but you know you took all those 14 million books Dr. Sanders and you laid them end to end according to this mathematician there are enough books to go around the world three times. I don't see the point of it myself, but I suppose it's a way of emphasizing that 14 million books is a lot of books. Do you know something? Unless some of those books, of the 14 million, have quotations from the Bible, there is not one of them that either understand the, the situation of the human heart, or can offer a remedy? Not one. In those 14 million, there are books of every science and learning under heaven. But apart from Scripture, not one of them either knows the need of the human heart or God's answer for that need. Scripture alone tells us what our hearts are like. And when it has told us the bad news, Then it tells us the good news that the sinfulness of our heart can be cured by the mighty alchemy of God's redeeming grace in Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart. On that Sunday night in 1927, when the brilliant British philosopher, C.S. Lewis knelt at his bed in his Cambridge room. He said he had come to the end of his defiance and he had come to the end of his atheism. And that night as he knelt in Cambridge, he was convinced that God exists. He was converted to theism. Later on, by the way, after about three years, he came to understand the place of Jesus and he surrendered to him that night in the book he wrote later some of you know it surprised by joy it is a double meaning because he married a lovely American lady whose name was joy and that sort of works its way through surprised by joy you remember the passage where he tells us what he discovered that Sunday night he saw his heart there I found what appalled me most. I was a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a zoo of lusts, a harem of hatreds. My name was Legion. That night, as God shone his light into the heart of C.S. Lewis, that humble, broken man saw the need The condition, brilliant philosopher, but a sinner before God. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross. What? Why? How? How can the heart be pure? Well, you see, we're talking about people in the kingdom. And that's the secret. All who are in the kingdom have submitted to the King. I hope I'm permitted to use royalist language here in Republican America, but this is the language of Scripture. We have have surrendered to the King. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. We have submitted to his will and to his word. And under that authority, the great grace of God, The great mercy of God is applied to our hearts until our hearts are cleansed and purified and brought into willing, loving submission. Now, you will find the same language in other parts of the New Testament. I mean, the same truth. The language is a little different. We are told to mortify our members. We are told to put off the old man. We are told to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. It's the same truth that our Lord is teaching here. The language of Paul is simply a little different. The heart is made pure. When we surrender ourselves entirely to the will and purpose of Jesus our King and our Lord. And his redemptive grace is applied to our hearts to forgive us, to cleanse us, to purify us, to renew us. For all in the kingdom have received his sanctifying spirit. I was so glad on my brief visit to your library the other evening to notice that among your many fine books you have the very rare set in fact you almost have two complete sets I hope you know this the poetical works of John and Charles Wesley all 13 volumes of them I looked for 23 years to find a set for myself It then took me 25 years To find a set for our college library in Manchester and although I didn't ask I just think that my late dear friend Tom Mitchell might have had something to do with those two sets coming to your library Uh, compiled by George Osborne in 1862 it is all the poetical works of both the brothers the vast majority of course eight and a half thousand hymns from the pen of brother Charles among them there is a wonderful prayer that sums up how the heart can be pure. If I were putting together a top ten of my favorite Charles Wesley hymns, this one would be among the ten. It would be high up in the list. Probably most of our church lives we've we've sung it in church if you happen to be in a church where Has a hymn book or uses this particular hymn. It is that wonderful prayer of Charles Wesley that begins Oh, for a heart to praise my God. Remember it? A heart from sin set free. A heart that always feels the blood so freely spilt for me. A heart resigned, submissive, meek. My great Redeemer's throne where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone, a humble, lowly, contrite heart, believing true and clean, which neither life nor death can part from him who dwells within, a heart in every thought renewed and full of love divine, perfect, and right, and pure, and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. And then, as in all his hymns, Charles comes to his great climax always in the closing verse. And he tells us how. Thy nature, gracious Lord, impart. Come quickly from above. Write thy new name upon my heart, thy new name best name of love. What? Why? How? When? We see God now. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then, we will see him face to face. For without holiness, No man will see the Lord. And I leave the last word with John Keeble because it is simply so beautiful, so scriptural, and so moving. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see our God. The secret of of the Lord is theirs. Their soul is Christ's abode. Still to the lowly soul he doth himself impart, and for his dwelling and his throne chooseth the pure. In heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God.